This is the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 896, A Conversation with Zeb Wells. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 896. We're almost at 900. Uh, this is a conversation with Zeb Wells. This is actually the second interview with Zeb Wells. Uh, the first one was back in episode 382. That was published on June 17th, 2016. So we're just past the five-year mark. Uh, I bring it up because I do think it's very helpful to listen to this interview first. This is very much the, the interview I'm about to pre- present. Uh, it feels very much like a sequel. Um, we, we, we kind of jump right in exactly where we left off. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, Zeb Wilson kind of left the comic book industry, and now obviously he's returned, and he's making making waves, and he's going to be part of the you know the new brain trust on the, on the, on the Sp- Amazing Spider-Man book. Now that goes th- uh, to Thrice Monthly, uh, he's going to be quote unquote the showrunner, which I refer to him as numerous times throughout this interview. Um, so I think it's very instructful and and helpful to understand Zeb as a creator and as a writer to understand where he was coming from to listen to that first interview because I do think it adds a lot of context. And again, we we kind of don't miss a beat. We jump right in and, and exactly where we left off last time. Um, so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. I really enjoyed having it um, when we recorded it, which was, I guess, the week of the, I want to say like the week of the 12th or so. Um, at the time... Not like still not a lot has really been coming out about uh, the new direction. Uh, we've had some teases, and we know it's going to be Ben Riley, and we've had some you know glimpses here and there, but we haven't a lot of information. And obviously, Zeb couldn't go too much into detail. But we talked a lot about the mechanics of kind of working as part of the team, what that was like, and how they kind of keep things straight, and what it's like working with Nick Lowe, uh, who's obviously the editor of the Spider-Man books, and is kind of the reason why Zeb ended up getting back in the comics. So um, I thought this was again so much fun to have. I would love to have Zeb back on uh, once we're in the. Ben Riley area, sorry, Ben Riley era, not area. Um, he does affectionately refer to me here as a Ben head, which I'm going to now uh, proudly wear as a moniker, thanks to Zeb Wells. Um, but yeah, this was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. I think you're going to dig it. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on, sorry, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks for listening to me prattle on for a couple minutes, and let's jump right into the conversation with Zeb Wells. Enjoy. Zeb, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's uh, good to have you on the show. It's been a long time. Uh, it's been uh, coming up on five years since we had you on the show. I was actually re-listening it to it uh, as, as prep for this episode. And uh, not that we left it on a downer, but it was almost sad at the end because we were talking about how... <laughs> You didn't know if you'd ever go back to comics, and it was it kind of left as the kind of this dangling thing that you weren't sure if it would ever happen. Uh, we were talking about you know some of the characters that might entice you to to come back, and obviously you have come back to comics in the last couple of years. So I'm very curious what the road was to you coming back, because again when we spoke it was June 2016, and comics were feeling more in your kind of rearview mirror. Obviously you're working in TV, etc. So what what changed? How did you come back into the Marvel fold? Yeah, so I must have been just deep in my show Supermansion at the time. Mm-hmm. So I probably was, yeah, probably hard to think of anything else. <laughs> and yeah, I don't think I, I don't think I was planning on going back to comics. But then um, the show went away or the show ended, mm-hmm. and 
my wife ended up getting a job in New York, so I moved to New York, and I just didn't know what was next or really what to do with myself. <laughs> and I started having uh, lunches with uh, with Nick Lowe over at Marvel, who I got along with really well on the, when we worked together on New Mutants. And he finally enticed me into doing a 10-page Spider-Man story. Mm. And it was really interesting when I sat down, I like got out my, my uh, old whiteboard again, and I had my, which had, you know, like I have a whiteboard that has 21 squares on it so I can map out, out my stories, you know, each comic. Oh, wow. and, and I just hadn't done that in so long. And like by the time I had just mapped out my third page, I was like, oh, I like this. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> and I like this. And I think my first stint at doing comics, I had just put, I was just putting so much pressure on myself and I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I got <laughs> my first writing job, I was, I think, 22 or 23 and it was a real uh, you know dog catching the car situation <laughs> I suddenly found myself writing at Marvel Comics and just had no idea what I was doing and so there was a lot of self doubt and some of it uh, very valid like not having to figure out how to write mm-hmm. basically um, but, I, but what I realized is coming out of, of doing Supermansion, which was a fairly brutal four years of, of writing a lot, you know, and having to get my schedule or my uh, my process disciplined in order just to survive that process, I realized that I had come out of that with a more disciplined process that could actually allow for me to have fun. Mm. So I guess that's a long-winded way to say that I, I grew up a little bit in the time <laughs> that I was away from comics and when I came back with my new with, with my more developed skill set I thought oh oh, I can do this and have fun and do good work mm-hmm. and so that's what I wanted that's what I want to do now that I'm writing again did, did it surprise you that I mean again I, I'm obviously talking about a conversation that happened five years ago which you know you probably don't remember all of it anyway but and I literally just listened to it, so that's why it's so fresh for me. But it was interesting because, as you said at the time, it felt like you know, you had kind of almost realized that you couldn't maybe, that, that something wasn't working for you in comics and that you felt exhausted by it. And that you even kind of said that you needed to kind of refine the process. And so I guess it sounds like you figured out a way to do that. But was that a surprise to you that like you sit down and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm better at this now? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a huge surprise. I think there's something that you've got to be really careful of as you go through life. This is a Zeb Wells life lesson. Um, you know, a lot of times something is hard or something is scary, and the first thing you think of is, oh, well, obviously it's hard and scary because there's something wrong with me, hmm. and I'll never figure it out. I'm just never going to get it. I'm, I'm defective somehow. And really, a lot of the times it's just, hey, you're doing something hard, and it takes you a little time to figure it out so I think comics were always very painful for me because you know you try your best and without having a disciplined process I was always 
um, procrastinating, so I was always, you know, in a very uh, bad headspace when I did finally sit down to write. So it never felt good to do it. But so then to answer your question, when I picked up the pen again, if you will, and started doing it and it actually felt good to do it, that was shocking to me. <laughs> it still feels like an absolute miracle. I thought that was something that would just never change. I pounded my head against the wall for what? I, I wrote till 2013, so like 12 years. And I, you know, I wanted to be better that whole time. I wanted to change. I wanted to be more disciplined. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. So to actually figure it out and sort of move on to the next stage of my career, which is a slightly more confident stage and certainly a more happy stage feels very surprising and very, very good. One, I guess one of the, the first kind of full things you're working on was Spider-Ham. Did that come from Nick? I think Nick, t- uh, you know, told people at Marvel that I was back in the game. Hmm. So I started... Did that scare uh, you? Did that scare you as an idea to kind of say that I'm back? Like, are yes, people going to want me? Or are people going to like still want me to write on things? What are my relationships with other editors? Like, was that was that scary? It was scary because I didn't know really how people felt about me there. Um, because I was always a writer. I mean, I was always a writer that did his absolute best. Like, I was working very hard. But I don't think I was really easy to work with because I was always up to, I was always working up to the last minute. Mm. You know, like they, they were always having to hound me because I was just putting so much pressure on myself that I never thought it was good enough. So, so I was just procrastinating all the time. So yeah, I did wonder, there is a part of you that's like, well, does anyone still want to work with me? Mm. What, what is the word on myself at Marvel? So when I started getting calls, you know, Darren Shan called me about doing Ant-Man and Devin called me about doing Spider-Ham. You know, those were both characters that I can't say I was chomping at the bit to work on. But I just really wanted to show Marvel and the editors that I was reliable and that I was going to do good work and I was going to take it really seriously. So that was my goal, to if they were on the fence about me, to really show them that they didn't have to be. Hmm. Now, a question. So when you first break into comics, as you said, you were always kind of trying really hard. It was it was kind of this exciting thing. You can't believe you know, you're actually working at Marvel Comics. And I guess that never really stops, right? Because you didn't really have a break. You just kept going from project to project until you finally kind of you know, we're, we're done with comics for a little while, uh, and then eventually came back. When you come in now, do you feel, I don't know if the relaxed is the right word, but do you feel like you're less, less desperate to kind of make a name and, and keep it, keep the job and more able to enjoy the projects? Does that make sense? I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just yeah, to- No, no, no. Yeah. No, that's absolutely it. Like for me now, the joy I take in it is sitting down and doing three pages a day on each comic that I'm working on at the particular time and letting my editors know exactly when the script will be in and then getting it in um, at that time for the most part you know there's a little there's still there's a little slippage here and there 
Um, but a lot of that pressure is off, and I think that comes with age. I think part of it is just feeling my age now, and I mean that in, in a good way, feeling that I've been in a lot of situations story-wise over the, over the first leg of my career where I was terrified that, that, that I was not going to be able to figure out what this story needed to do, that I was going to be found out. That, you know, your mind just goes in these circles and tells you the worst possible things are going to happen. <laughs> and I just, I just have enough reps that I know that bo- boogeyman isn't real. I know that there's an answer out there. I know that I just need to talk to somebody or or jog my brain somehow and that I'm going to figure this out. So it is having confidence in myself mm-hmm. has been very helpful and made the whole project a lot more fun. Would you say that the imposter syndrome has gone away completely or is it, is it always kind of there? You know, it is there, but I can recognize it for what it is now, which is just a thought and a feeling and not the truth. Mm. So I can acknowledge that I'm having that feeling, but then, you know, it's kind of fun. I can kind of be like, oh, remember when I would have let that feeling ruin a week of my life (laughs) and ruin this script and ruin this process, and now I'm just going to let that feeling go away and attach no value to it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to continue doing my work and... So, yeah, I think the the problem you run into, I think all of these feelings are natural. When you're doing something scary and hard, parts of you bubble up and try to get you to stop because it's uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And where you get into trouble is when you let those, when you take those feelings and, you know, if you're creative and you're a writer, you can very easily take those feelings and start obsessing on them and telling yourself stories that's what you do you tell stories so you tell yourself stories about why you're having that feeling and and you know why you can never do it why you're going to fail um but if you can just acknowledge that it's a feeling and choose to let it go uh you start you start seeing that you don't have to believe this stuff that you tell yourself Mm mm-hmm so I want to get into, obviously, working on Spider-Ham, Ant-Man, and then also Hellions, but what I'm more curious about as well is just the timing, is that you have these books start to come out, I think Spider-Ham comes out right at the end of 2019, and then you have, uh, you know, the second issue comes out, I believe, in January 2020, then you have Ant-Man coming out, and then you have a pandemic hit, and I'm curious, you know, what that made you, like, how what was that like for you to kind of deal with? Because especially with Hellions, you basically have the first issue come out, like, the last time comics are shipped. <laughs> And then it just kind of disappears for a while. So, what was it like for you as a uh, as a creative person to suddenly, you know, not know if you know when are comics going to come out again? Was there a period where you did feel like you were kind of actually putting pens pencils down, so to speak, or did you ever ever really kind of stop thinking? Did it allow you to get ahead of the game in terms of your books? Like, what? How did you navigate a very scary thing where suddenly the comic industry is kind of shut down at the beginning of this worldwide pandemic? How do you personally interact with that? Yeah, it's interesting to think about now that you ask because it was an interesting part, interesting time for the industry. It was also an interesting time for all of our lives. There was just a lot to worry about (laughs) at that time. And things were changing so fast. You didn't know 
when they were, you know, when they were going to stop changing or how much was going to change. And there's so much doom and gloom around the comic book industry. Everything you read for years, for decades, has been saying it's hanging on by a thread. So it was hard not to think that this might be the thing that puts it down for good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a real testament to all the retailers out there, how well they weathered the storm and made it work. I was lucky that uh, Ant-Man and Spider-Ham were completely written and I think probably drawn. Mm. So I knew that those would come out eventually. And with Hellions, I lucked out because we got to keep writing. Mm. Now, some people some people did get paused and have to stop working, you know, and that sucks. I And, and I did have to stop thinking about other books you know like as Ant-Man and Spider-Ham were winding down I started talking to Darren about what we could do next together and Devin what could we do next together and all that talk went away because the only their biggest books were being continued to be worked on Mm -hmm. and those were getting banked so I did get to keep working on Hellions and actually get ahead of the game on that which was great and then it was cool because during that time the Ten of Swords crossover was being worked on and so not only was there a a, sort of a big project to work on but I don't know if you're aware of the X-Men family how we have a slack for all the X-Men writers now Yep, and to keep, you know, to just try to keep track of some of these stories, and so that in and of itself was such an outlet to still feel like you were going into the office to a degree mm. where you were logging into Slack, and you know, people would say what they did the previous night or what they were into, and then batting stories around. I think that was a big thing that kept me sane during that process. <laughs> so I have to go back then. I mean, obviously. I have to understand, or I would love to understand, how did you end up with Hellions as a book? I mean, obviously, everyone's kind of heard about what the, you know, what the X office kind of feels like now, and the idea that you know Hickman's kind of this 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 architect or creator. So I'm curious how it felt kind of coming into that, and what has it been like to work on it? I mean, you obviously were part of you know a similar type of well, very I guess different in scope in terms of the brain trust that worked on or the webheads, whatever they're called all the time. But when you worked on you know Amazing Spider-Man before, you had a, a lot of different writers kind of working and collaborating together. Is it very different, or how does it feel or function? It's a it is it's the same and it's different, and and it's odd because the difference is Slack hmm. and. When they told me that we were going to be on Slack, you know, I'm in my 40s. I was like, well, well, how's this different than email? How's this different than texting? What? Why do we need this? But there is something different about that platform that they've nailed that feels very collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I... I got in, you know, I got involved with Hellions. I'm, I'm kind of proud of, of, of getting that Hellions book because it's one of the, it, because I really went after it. I, I still remember I was doing, I think I had, I was in the, into Ant-Man and I was doing the Spider-Ham miniseries, but there was still, just in the back of my mind, I didn't know 
if I wanted to, to, to go full steam ahead with Marvel and like really see what I could do. And I remember that the House of X came out and I bought that issue and I was going to meet a friend and I read the issue beforehand and you know I had I had I had checked in every once in a while and, and picked up an issue here and there and you know there was good stuff that I liked. But when I, when I read House of X number one, I was struck with the thought that oh oh somebody's doing something like someone's taking a swing here. Like every once in a while, somebody does a book that just feels like they're trying to do something big, and then even rarer than that is when they actually like the actual execution lives up to it, hmm. and. Then when I saw that there were these other books coming out of the House of X, Powers of X, I was like, oh, man, uh, that would be super cool to do. And then a couple weeks later, I got invited to the uh, like one of the creative summits mm-hmm. at Marvel. Now, I don't think the, the writer of Ant-Man and Spider-Ham usually gets invited to these things. <laughs> so I, I, th- I think it was... I think it was because I, – I, I know it was because I lived in New York. I had just moved to New York. So, like, they didn't have to – you know, there was no airline involved, no hotel room. I just showed up. And so so I showed up and I saw Hickman across the room. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, a little starstruck. And I don't – you know, I don't get starstruck by many people. But I was like, oh, there's that, there's that guy that's doing something. And – so on on the second or third day, I think it was three days, um, on, on one of the lunch breaks, I went up to him and, and I said, hey, Jonathan, I heard you guys are doing an X-Men summit right after this. You know, if, if you wanted me to swing by, I'm in town. I could absolutely <laughs> do that. <laughs> he was like, uh, I don't think that's quite how it works, but uh, if you're asking if you want to have an X book, I think we could work something out. So I was like, yes, you know, I didn't get to go to this summit, but, but, uh, but I, I creepily approached him and then we just started batting, batting stuff back and forth. And the reason I wanted to do it is one, I was all juiced up by what he was doing on house of X powers of X. I was juiced up by what all the other writers were doing. Because because all that first line wave of books that came out, I just loved how they were all exploring a very fun aspect of Krakoa, this new thing. I was like, oh, these people—they're really building this whole world out. The other thing that excited me about it is I had so much respect for everyone involved. I knew there was no way to like show up and sleepwalk through that assignment. Mm. Like I would have to bring my A game. I would have to stretch myself and try to write the best comics I had written. So I thought as a growth tool, that was an important book for me to try to get. And so I was super jazzed to get it and, and still am. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be working on X-Men at this point in time. When when you get that book, so I'm curious, like just from like a, a pitch standpoint, like how much how much of what became Hellions, like the the makeup, the cast, the as you said, like every book kind of has its own direction and its own area of kind of Kokoa to explore. So 
how much of that was formed by you and how much of it was already on kind of on the table by editorial looking for, you know, a creative team to match that. So I pitched the concept of the book. Um, it was very much, it, I, I think Jonathan wants someone to come in with a big idea. Hmm. And so I think it was more like Jonathan laying out like, Oh, here's Krakoa. What, what, you know, what would you do with it? Like there's, there's a thousand ideas here. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand questions that this Island poses. What, what do you want to explore? So I got on the phone with them and just, you know, it was a fairly simple pitch though. It was just, Hey, there's a lot of bad guys living on this Island. How are they going to fit in? Like, what do we do with them? Mm-hmm. And I think he's the one who said, Oh yeah, that's a, yeah, there should absolutely, oh, they should be called the Hellions. And because I think that they were having fun, like geeking out, like moving titles around mm. and giving, you know, like the Marauders are now an X-Men team. Um, Excalibur concentrates on magic. Um, and so, and then he said, oh, oh, we have Mr. Sinister on the council. That should totally be his team. And so then I took that idea and worked on the logistics of how he would get that team, what that would look like. And then the cast was a little challenging because, A, you know, there were like five books that went ahead of me. (laughs) Obviously, when you get an X-Men book, you start grabbing the best characters, you know. And I don't want to say best characters because I am super happy with the characters I got. But, you know, the most recognizable ones, Mm -hmm. the ones that are going to sell comic books. So it was me trying to... (laughs) You know, wanting to add characters like Nanny and Orphan Maker, <laughs> and then Jordan, Jordan the uh, our tireless editor, saying, "Yeah, but who's on the cover? You know, who's on the cover?" And so that's where he was doing like a, a few gymnastics to figure out how do we get a character like Havoc on the team? Hmm. How do we get a character like Psylocke on the team that have this name recognition that might get people to to check it out? For sure, when you have a character like Havoc, who's been through a lot, especially like I would say in the last maybe ten, fifteen years, that has really challenged the character. Was that a lot of fun to kind of do the research and be like, "Well, this is how messed up this guy would be." Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I I've always liked Havoc. He's one of those characters that when I was young and first started reading X Men. He just looks cool. That costume is so outlandish. <laughs> and then his powers complement it so well. And then, oh, he's Cyclops' brother. And then, but then, yeah, doing, doing the research and seeing just how badly he's been tore up. And especially with the Axis stuff mm-hmm. and how he, you know, went full evil, was inverted to a bad guy, and then sort of got his brain put back together with spackle i was like uh, it it was like the perfect situation oh i can show that this guy has like some deep-seated issues from that while honoring his past you know i don't have to create something or take a hard left turn i thought it was a fairly logical extrapolation from what had been happening to him and you know i'm i'm a continuity guy whenever i can do that it feels better to me with a character like that who again does have such a kind of a long windy history was there is there any piece of his continuity that you found has not really been mined but would love to oh that's a 
Great question. I think looking back, I did. I know. You know what? I've just been geeking out so hard on the Axis stuff that that's that's what I really wanted to pull apart. Mm-hmm. And then also the the long game of him being, um, you know, and, and obviously I also wanted to dive into his relationship with Madeline Pryor mm-hmm. because I thought that just said I don't know. It's all little brother stuff. So I think just there's. I think there's fun little brother stuff, but I think there's a lot of emotional inferiority that comes along with the little brother stuff mm-hmm. that I that I really wanted to mine. I want to dig into a little bit deeper. When when you have him confronting Cyclops about the fact that Madeline was a real person when they're not bringing her back, like that's heart wrenching stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was that was brutal. That whole thing about them not bringing Madeline Pryor back. I it was one of those moments that I love when I didn't want to write that and because it bummed me out so much, but I just knew it was the most powerful version of the ending of that story, and it and it made the most sense and and I thought it was interesting because a lot of the feedback from fans was a lot of anger and rage, but I I, I think. You know when you did something right when it wasn't really pointed at me, it was kind of pointed at at the council and at Cyclops, <laughs> so I could just kind of kick back and be like, "Ah, I did it." You know, I, I, I avoided that bullet. <laughs> you know, like I I shifted the blame on the characters, which was great. What I mean, I would imagine, like in the Slack, as you're saying, like I mean, some of the questions that come up in these stories about again the re- the resurrection protocols, what what the rules are. I mean, it must be interesting just from you guys as writers bouncing these ideas off each other to kind of say well would this happen or would this not happen and why would this be allowed to happen like I would imagine that must be such a fertile ground for just kind of exploration which you guys then get to translate onto the page absolutely it's just all getting it's constantly being churned up in the slack it's constantly being looked at from every angle and that's what's really interesting about this era of X books is I don't see how you do that 30 years ago. Hmm. Or, you know, without, like... Because you're never going to get... like Because comic writers are all over the country. You know, you're never going to get them into a, a writer's room for nine months to write <laughs> all these stories. Like, that just financially, that doesn't make sense. So, this has been so cool to see... To kind of get that that bump that I've noticed you get in a writer's room where you have a group of writers that come together and really, really sink into a story or a concept for week after week after week. And Slack has somehow been able to recreate that. And so these questions are, are able to be looked at from so many different angles and it, it never ceases to amaze me the stories that I wake up and read on Slack that's, you know, an idea that someone's had overnight. It's really exciting. And I'm, I, even if I didn't have an X book, just as a fan, it has been so exciting to be in that X Slack as a fan of these other writers <laughs> to just 
be able to peer inside their minds and see how they work. It's been so valuable. So of your fellow ex-writers, who would you say is the most philosophical? Oh, the most philosophical, that's probably... Oh, man. That's uh, Leah, mm-hmm. Sai, Vita, and Al. Interesting. Probably. Um, you know, but everybody... Everybody has a lot of thoughts, though, I have to say. <laughs> it does feel like this this era of X-Men definitely asks more questions and has more of these type of deep thoughts than I think we've seen in X-Men in a long time. In terms of you know true exploration of what it means to be certain things, depending on the book, obviously. But there's just so many deeper questions that we're not maybe used to seeing as often. It's really nice to see them explored. Yeah. I think X-Men and X-Men stories have gone crazy, you know, have gotten crazy and big and huge and explored so much stuff. But they were always tethered by this idea that the point of the X-Men were to protect humanity, you know, protect the humans that fear and despise them. You know, to be to be heroes. Mm. And Jonathan came in and said, okay, what if they stopped caring about that and they just cared about building a mutant society that could survive the future and mutants could survive? And I think he took, you know, he kind of cut the brakes when he did that. There's just, when you're talking about building a society, there, you know, on a, on, when you, once you get to a high enough level, there, you know, the, the difference between good guys and bad guys definitely gets blurred. You're now talking about, it's less about how heroic you are and more how much power you've amassed. You know, Mr. Sinister is a terrible person but he runs the a massive part of the technology that runs resurrection so he has a seat at the table sorry if you don't like it that's they need him there for society to work and the amount of questions that churns up when a superhero is sitting next to this super villain and they have to work together i think just by the nature of it has led to, to just yeah, like, you're right. It's a massive explosion of philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. Now, you got to use uh, a Mastermind recently, and I thought that was probably the, the coolest use of Mastermind I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, that was interesting because that, that, that first issue that he's in, when he does that thing to them, like when they're driving in the car... And he starts, you know, that, that was an interesting situation because I had, I had first written that scene where the Hellions show up and he makes them think that each of them are like their worst fears. And so they fight each other uh, and they knock each other out. And something about it didn't feel right. And I realized that it's because it wasn't mean enough to the Hellions. Like the Hellions <laughs> are... The book should always be mean to them so that we can have compassion for them. Mm. You know, these are characters that, that life is hard for them. And and they have a, a painful relationship to life. And so in trying to make what Mastermind was doing to them more mean, it's it, it kind of made me be more creative and 
ended up uh, finding some really fun things to do with him, I thought. Well, even, I just like the idea when you have, um, oh, not Arcade there, and he's he keeps saying things out loud to make sure that they're really a perception, and you have someone else kind of confirming it. I thought that was such a cool idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and those, and I really was happy with how that turned out. And that's one of that's one of those ideas that pops into your head when you're in an absolute panic <laughs> because you realize there's a hole in your story because you're like, wait a minute, how did how would Arcade trust Mastermind? How do we know after I just so, shown this scene where everything's fake? How is the reader going to know what's real? And got totally terrified. Then and then that popped into my head. Well, okay, that maybe Arcade has figured out a way to confirm things are real. Oh, and then if he was saying, uh, confirm after everything, not only does that make sense, but it would just be so weird. And it would just be such a weird thing to throw into a scene. And then once you get in and start playing with it, you realize that, you know, so 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 many funny moments came from it, or, or moments that I had fun with. Absolutely. It was again. It felt like one of those things that no one had kind of thought to put it in there. But again, it makes so much sense. Like if anyone's ever dealing with mastermind, they need some sort of control or some sort <laughs> yeah, of level of, yeah. of understanding. Because yeah, the guy. It's interesting that characters like Mastermind or even Purple Man, their powers were used more fun in the '60s, and now they're yeah. much more sinister with modern writers. Yeah, yeah. Modern writers show up and are like, "Wait, what, what is this? <laughs> what?" What can what can this guy do? That's not good. It is funny, yeah, because you know you, you look at people with those types of powers, and you know I, I don't know if it's just because it was the comics code of the '60s, but yeah, like some of these powers could be taken in such a dark, twisty level, and I guess that's just what modern comic writers are really good at doing is taking these things <laughs> yeah. and, and showing how you know creepy and twisted they really are. Yeah, yeah. So. I have to ask, so, you, you know, you have this great experience with Hellions. It was a book you fought for. You're really enjoying it. So, obviously, recently the news has come out about everything was with Amazing Spider-Man. So, obviously, you're already friends with Nick, so that maybe solves some of the question of how you might have been on in in this um, in the orbit of the, you know, Amazing Spider-Man office. But how, how, how did any of it kind of come about? It sounds like you kind of made a pitch, and it's kind of building out off of that, and it's kind of like... Brand New Day 2.0 in terms of having a creative team kind of working together on a three times a month book, but can you walk me through what it would look like from your side? Yeah, Nick came to me and said he was putting together a team of writers to take over from Nick Spencer once he finished his run. And he had he had a lot of ideas. He wanted to do a Ben Riley story. He wanted... Um, Actually, I don't know how much has been revealed, so I got to be careful here. Okay, but there was there was uh, um, some stuff that Nick had, and then I kind of took that and added ideas to it, and then the fun of that was then bringing in these other writers and recreating a writers' room. And once that happens, like I mean, we're dealing with some heavy hitters here. We got Saladin and Kelly and Pat and then uh, Cody Ziegler who I worked with on She-Hulk uh, who I recommended to Nick is in there and once they got in and, and we started churning the story up, it became this this massive six month, three times a month 
story that I really, really can't wait for people to see. So I want to go back for a second. So obviously we're talking about Nick Spencer's run ending. I'm curious. So it, it felt like, especially as a fan and reader of Amazing Spider-Man, that that Nick had almost been doing three times a month for a while. Like you had, the book was coming out twice a month, but then you had these giant size issues. So you had all these other kind of special issues that were coming out that felt like the book was almost, at, you know, three times a month anyway. But that was all one, yeah. guy, one guy. And so, I mean, as some, I, I'm sure you can imagine how backbreaking that must have been to kind of you know be doing that much spider-man constantly on a, on a regular churn like you were part of a, a team that was working on spider-man before and again people were spelling each other off they were you know kind of coming and going whereas this was one guy for you know a couple of years doing all these books so now you guys are coming up with a kind of a team to do three times a month did when speaking with nick was he kind of saying like yeah you know it'd be better to have maybe this a little bit more spread out as, with a team of people as opposed to just one person because it is so labor-intensive. Yeah, I, I'd assume so. I mean, uh, because Nick Spencer is an absolute beast. You know, the, the, the level that he's writing at, at that frequency, not a lot of people can do that. So I think that had to have been in, in Nick's mind just as a, as a tonnage of work that it's so much it's so much better if you have a team that you trust because you get that frequency but everybody can kind of still work at their own pace you know we're not all Nick Spencer you know <laughs> so I have a question now and, and this might be one of those things where we're on the outside looking in as fans so obviously we have no real perspective sometimes so maybe, sometimes things kind of get lost in translation is it fair to say that you're kind of like the Jonathan Hickman of Spider-Man now, or is that an oversimplification? Um, I think I think it's a little bit of an oversimplification. I think Jonathan clearly has more responsibility than I do and and has his his fingers and everything a, a bit more. I, I was I was more it was sort of almost a uh, practical job where we would have all once you have all these ideas flying around in this room you kind of need someone to just take those ideas and write up like a, a, the, how that would look as a long story and so i would i would write up an outline a, a mega outline that took everyone's ideas and what they wanted to do and sort of just tried to fit them all together and then that would go back to the room and we would beat that up and then I would take another pass and another pass. So um, I would say that I am Hickman Jr. on <laughs> like, it. Like I guess I mean, what you've described basically sounds more like you're the showrunner, for lack of a better term. Yeah, for lack of a better term, that's what, that's what I would say. And But then once, you know, comics is definitely different than television. Once the scripts and the stories go to the writers that are writing them of course they have you know final say about what's happening in those issues mm -hmm. um, me or Nick might give some notes but that's the one cool thing about comics is um, you're never going to have a showrunner like take your script away from you and <laughs> rewrite you <laughs> that's, and that's, I think that's why people love comics mm. Now, when when you guys kind of start establishing, you know, the the new creative team, how involved were you with Nick and kind of picking out writers, or were was that more of just Nick's purview to kind of bring people to you, or how collaborative were you guys in assembling a team? We were pretty collaborative. We 
uh, would go back and forth and, um, you know, Nick was asking who I thought would be good or who, who I wanted to work with. And so as far as the team, just so excited. I'm such a fan and lobbied for everyone that's on the team. So, and, you know, I got to say, I've been proven right. We've, we've both been proven right. Um, everyone's doing just an, an incredible job on these books. Which which Slack is more fun to, to monitor, the X-Men one or the Spider-Man one? Well, the X-Men one definitely <laughs> has more people and is rowdier. <laughs> um, the, but the Spider-Man one's cooking up. You know, the Spider-Man one's in its, uh, in its earlier phases. The, uh, the X-Slack, though, is in its teens. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's wild teen phases. And so it's definitely a little rowdier. When the the first kind of announcements were coming out about Spider-Man, I think the one thing that was kind of almost slipped in there and people realized what it meant afterwards is that you have Pat Gleason actually writing as well as contributing art. Um, How important was that to you guys about kind of letting him have the chance to actually write as opposed to, you know, just being... I I don't mean just as a, you know, denigrating term, but you know what I mean? Like, he's an illustrator and a collaborator, and obviously there's a lot that goes into that, but now he's also going to be writing it as well. Was that, you know, a a big thing to kind of allow him to do the opportunity to do that, or how did that kind of come about? Yeah, he had... Nick said that he was interested in that, and of course seeing his artwork and his covers, and especially after seeing how he uh, designs his pages, you can tell that he has just a lot of thoughts about story, about how story is told. So it makes a lot of sense. And I think that that was a big, big deal that like, well, we want, we want Pat, we want his artwork, we want his, but we wanted his, uh, we wanted to bring that into the story level as well. So having him, in the room was a massive get. He had a lot of great ideas. And not only on a story level, but also, you know, it's also kind of cool that if you start talking about a character that you wake up the next morning and he's made a sketch, you know. <laughs> that's uh, you, you, that's pretty sweet. What, what, how, if you took, you know, Zeb Wells of mid-2000s, kind of, you know, the, the, the young, hungry, still a little unsure, a little bit nervous, but trying to fake it until he makes it kind of version of Zeb Wells, and you brought him forward to now to see that you're kind of, as I said, kind of a showrunner on Amazing Spider-Man and taking on this type of responsibility, and this is a great opportunity, would he be more nervous than excited, or how would he feel about it? Uh, he'd be, yeah, he'd be more nervous than excited, for sure. I think... Uh, I think he would be most impressed with the fact that I'm doing all of this and I'm not miserable <laughs> or that I'm not, you know, I'm not overwhelmed, hmm. you know, that I'm, that I'm handling it. That would be uh, the cool thing to show him, I think. Now, when you were younger, was, was Ben Riley a character that meant anything to you? Like the fact that you're, you know, you're coming on, there's so much to kind of unpack in terms of, you know, Nick Spencer leaves, there's a new creative team. It's not just, you know, one writer and one or a rotating series of artists, but you have an entire team of writers, you have rotating artists, you have, you know, uh, three times a month, like everything's kind of shifting. And then, oh yeah, guess what? Also Ben Riley's Spider-Man. That's a lot to take in all at once. So how... You know, what was your own personal interpretation or feeling on the Ben Riley character? And as someone who likes continuity, 
what was it like kind of figuring out how you're going to get to use him? And obviously this might be spoilers too, so you may not be able to answer all of it, but I'm just curious how you feel about it. It was very interesting because when the Ben Riley story came out, I think I had pretty much stopped reading Marvel at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, that was before Joe Quesada came on in the Marvel Knights and sort of, mm-hmm. you know, brought in a lot of um, really interesting talent to sort of revitalize Marvel. And so I, I guess I'm just going to come out and say it, Adam. I had zero attachment to that character. Okay. I And I assumed that everyone still hated him. So what was <laughs> super interesting is that a lot of the editors are from a younger generation at Marvel now and a lot of the assistant editors and I heard that people love Ben Riley, and so what was cool for me was a sort of I think we we scheduled we scheduled a call between me Nick Lowe and Danny Chasm just so I could ask him why people like Ben Riley. And so he had to explain to me what was going on. And, and, and as I learned about it, I started getting it. And then it started feeling like a really great, fun challenge to write this epic Ben Riley story that Ben Riley fans will absolutely enjoy. And then going into it and seeing how Dan Slott brought him back and how Peter David used him after that as sort of this Peter Parker character, this Peter Parker, but sort of with an edge, or could have more of an edge, I thought, oh, there's there's something really interesting there. But the goal is, even though I said I did not have any relationship to that character, I built one in the process of building this story, and so I'm really excited to be able to write him. Mm-hmm. Now, what, with the research on something like that, were you focusing more on, again, the kind of the more recent since, two th- uh, since consp- uh, Clone Conspiracy by Dan Slott and kind of that Peter David run, or were you kind of going back and looking at that kind of clone saga stuff the, that would have been right around the time when you kind of stopped reading Marvel? I wanted to look at the clone saga stuff because that was the stuff that really grabbed the imaginations of a lot of the people uh, I was talking to at the time. That's the stuff that they love you know to some of these uh editors like that was the first spider-man they met Hmm. and so i really i wanted to go back there and see what they were reading what they latched on to and you know there was there was i have to say there was some good stuff back there you know you have uh jm dematis writing a bunch of it Mm -hmm. and that's you know that's never going to be bad and then you have John Romita Jr. drawing a lot of it. Well, that's never going to be bad. So it was a really interesting uh, process. For sure. Yeah, I, I've, I mean, I, so I got to say, like, I am a fan of that kind of Clone Saga period. I wasn't reading a lot of comics. At the, I was, I would say I kind of came to comics a little bit late. I was like 13 or 14 before I even got into comics, where I kind of knew they were around. I had friends who read them. I had started reading some of the clone stuff, and I thought it was really interesting, uh, but I didn't really you know, know much about it. And then I kind of started really getting into Spider-Man comics just after the clone saga, but everything I was doing was kind of diving backwards and seeing 
everything about Ben Riley and all, and, and so I've always really loved the character. And it's so interesting that there was this long period where it was like you don't say clones, <laughs> you don't mention yeah. clones at Marvel. Yeah. You know, you use different words. I remember. Um, the uh, the Magneto clone Joseph when they first revealed it was a clone they went out of their way to use every possible word that wasn't clone because there was this, yeah. this this negative connotation at the time but I guess you know time heals all wounds and if you get far enough away from it suddenly people start bringing this stuff back and as you said people who loved it when they were young are now in positions where they can start to bring these things back and it's always interesting to me now I've been reading comics long enough that I can start to see that effect because obviously when I was first getting into comics, I wasn't around in the 70s or 80s reading comics, so I wasn't really appreciating when those things came back around. But now I'm seeing, you know, stuff I grew up on, you know, finally making that loop. Yeah, it's so interesting. And that, what was so shocking to me as an old-timer, because like what you what you said, that story was radioactive mm-hmm. for 20 years. You were not supposed to even pretend it existed, and no one wanted to talk about it. And then slowly slowly you start hearing about the existence of these bin heads like you <laughs> who have fond memories of it like oh we, we actually really like that and that's uh yeah that's what's cool about comics everything can be redeemed everything everything comes back we all we all remember these stories um and they, and they make an impression on us I guess it was interesting looking at the you know the first preview art that we saw as, as fans about you know Spider-Man Beyond and seeing uh, you know the Ben Riley with the blonde hair again. I, that seems like such a silly aesthetic, but obviously that that is something to a lot of people. That is Ben Riley. Like seeing him with the the brown hair isn't the same. There's just something about that blonde Spider-Man. Was that important to bring it back? And it sounds silly, but you know it's it's no, a part, of, I, a part of that a certain iteration of that character that people have that fond memory for the blonde Spider-Man. Yeah, it's super important. You want it to feel like people remember it feeling. And I think that blonde hair really did give people that that kick. And we and you know, we I think we have a really uh really fun, really emotional story to tell with Ben, but we also just want to make people that remember that stuff really happy. Now, when when you're working with again this amazing creative team that you guys have lined up, I mean, obviously, who maybe who has surprised you so much so far? As obviously, you you expect great things from these people, but is there anyone who's really kind of surprised you already by something that they kind of brought in? You're like, oh man, that's that's a game changer, or something that's kind of that took you by surprise. They they were they yeah uh, they all surprised me. Pat had. Just a just I, I you know I had germs of ideas and he came in and not only said you know he, he was good about saying how we could show that on the page in a way that wasn't just explaining it you know how to show it through art which was fantastic he built stuff out uh, Saladin and Saladin his story brain is very very well developed so I, I, I loved getting in a room with him because all the stuff that I thought was going to be hard to figure out, he would have like three ideas for it <laughs> on how uh, how we could do it. So he just made everything easy. It was fantastic. And Kelly, you know, she's such a fun writer and such a funny writer that bringing her, she brought her voice to things and she has become one of the premier action writers in comics. Mm-hmm. Now, like the action in her books is so good. So that was an awesome thing to like learn from while she was in there. And then 
uh, Cody's a bit of a young gun, and his dialogue has been just making me laugh all the time when it comes in. So that's been spectacular to just be around and experience. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, as I'm going to talk to you as a, as a showrunner for a second, but how do you, do you approach the book differently because it's shipping three times a month in terms of the speed of the certain plot lines, et cetera? Because I always felt that when Brand New Day happened, um, one thing that I really enjoyed about it is it really did feel like a weekly like a weekly TV show. You just kind of turned it on, and then if you didn't like a story, it felt like it was it was done that month. Like, it wasn't like something you were hanging out with for a long time, whereas, obviously, with a regular monthly comic, if you're doing a storyline that's six issues long, that's six months, that's a long period to kind of be sitting with that, whereas when you're doing something on, a, you know, three times a month, you can kind of churn through, especially if the arcs are tinier, which is something that obviously happened in Brand New Day a lot, where you had two-issue arcs, three-issue arcs, so it felt like you were going through really fast, so you felt like you were just getting so much content very quickly, and it was really fun to digest that. How have you found the pacing this time around in terms of how you guys approach the stories and how long they take to kind of gestate and and occur? That's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, simply, I recognized that same thing that you just explained, and... We're doing uh, shorter arcs, and you're absolutely right. Just knowing that someone isn't going to have to wait that long for the next bit of the story, it allows you to – it's hard to sum up how you write differently, but you do start writing differently because you don't mind – you don't mind teasing things. You don't mind the tease being a little harder or the – the cliffhanger being a little scarier because or or like or or meeting out the information or leaving questions in the reader's mind because you know that they'll they're they're not going to have to wait a month and forget all of this stuff Mm -hmm. before the next issue comes out like those questions will be still fresh in their minds when the next issue comes out and it does free you up a little bit one thing I appreciated about the brand new day era, and I'm curious if how integrated this has become into kind of this new, uh, I guess Spider-Man Beyond is the title, right? That's basically what we can call this era. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess yeah. I, I'm curious if that, if it felt like, uh, I almost lost my thought for a second, but in terms of, again, that, that speed, you have this kind of constant churn. Did it feel like you would have, as you said, you, you were talking about like having different kind of different cliffhanger endings, etc. Did you feel like you're going to be able to have more subplots because you have a book coming out so frequently that you have to kind of always have something gestating? Um, it, it definitely feels like comics in general maybe have less subplotting than they used to back in the day, for better or for worse. I mean, sometimes subplots were just kind of spun out and then nothing ever happened with them. Um, but right, in a book right. like yours where you have all these different writers kind of throwing the baton back and forth, but you all kind of have a, a sense of where it's all going together because you are working together. Does it allow more subplots to kind of start populating the book? Definitely. Definitely. I think, I think these books that we're working on have so many subplots and allow you to check in for a couple pages here and there. And yeah. And, and you can check in for a couple pages and then let two issues go by and then check in for another couple pages, and you know if two months had gone by, it would it would require a lot of setup and reminding of the reader of what just happened. But when a week has gone by, or and it's just two weeks between two issues, you can just pick up with things. So 
by its nature, you're absolutely right. You just find yourself weaving together so many more stories and so many more characters. Now, uh, one thing that obviously sets Spider-Man apart from a lot of other characters is his vibrant supporting cast, which has definitely gone through its ups and downs over the years in terms of both their usage and, you know, who's kind of in rotation at any particular time. Are there new elements of the supporting cast that you're introducing, or are you playing more of the old-school favorites, or, or is it kind of a mixture of both? Uh, it's a mixture of both. The... The ben Riley brings in some characters that aren't necessarily always in Spider-Man's orbit and brings them into his orbit. And so we're kind of building out another area of Spider-Man's life, which will create side characters. But that said, we, we, we get to play with all the greats, too, and all the favorites. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do research into, you know, again, an era like the Clone Saga, when they originally spun off Ben Riley, well, not spun him off, when Ben Riley originally took kind of took over back in the day, they they populated him with his own supporting cast, which has for the most part just kind of been forgotten and dropped. Will we see any of those characters? Will we see anyone from the Daily Grind or anything like that show up? There, uh, yes, is what I will say. Okay. Yes, not not specifically from the Daily Grind, but from <laughs> Ben Riley's. Past, but they, they but they could be from the Daily Grind. All, all I will say is <laughs> that we did a deep dive on Ben Riley's past and grabbed a few toys from that. Okay, like I, I don't need the guy reading the newspaper who is always coming up with crazy ideas. Like I don't need that guy. <laughs> I forget his name. Oh, but... you're a die you're a diehard fan. <laughs> I just remember the period fondly. Like I. When when they started publishing the uh, the you know complete Clone Saga trade paperbacks about a decade ago, I was one of the ones who was like there day one, being like, please put this in my hands because I wanted to be able to kind of read it all. Because again, I was of an age when it was coming out that I was not able to pick up every book because there was a lot of them. Um, so being able to yeah, have like yeah, yeah, yeah. eleven trade paperbacks to collect that period was a big deal to me. Even though you know <laughs> it's not all great, obviously, but it was just you know it, it's this period. I, I can't remember who said it once that you know the best age of comics is thirteen, and so, so or something to that effect, like whatever yeah, that age yeah. is. And so that to me is kind of that period that I would have been sure. maybe eleven when the Clone Saga started. So kind of prime prime uh, era to actually you know kind of love that stuff. Yeah, and when you're that age, the stories just they all have weight to them. Mm-hmm. You well, don't realize that that this is all cyclical in these stories and whatever happens in these stories will be redone in a couple months and oh, uh, you know reset you, ju- you just feel like oh this is the most important Spider-Man story I have ever read yeah I mean that's that's I mean that's the I guess the exciting part when you don't know any better right when, when you kind of come yeah, into something yeah, yeah. with this freshness and this naivete it makes everything a little bit more exciting it's why you remember it so well um, I remember one of my it's embarrassing, but I'll, I'll, I'll cop to it. Uh, when Amalgam Comics happened back in the day, uh, as that kind of uh-huh. event after Marvel vs. Uh, DC, uh, again, I'm young enough, I did not realize that was a stunt. I was like, where are these other Amalgam Comics? Because they yeah, did such yeah. a good job <laughs> with each issue being like, you know, all the editor's notes and kind of making it feel lived in. Like, this was this world, and you're yep. just getting a glimpse into it. And I remember, as you know, again, I was, I, I don't know, like 11 or 12 when that was happening. And I was like, I want to read these books. And then, obviously, I realized, oh, this is not a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of when I went into my local comic store that, that was right next to our junior high, and there was some kid in there 
that had just started reading comics or, you know, didn't, didn't really read them. And he picked up a copy of Amazing Spider-Man and I think it was the one with Venom and he had Spider-Man's skull mm. in his, in his hand, like the, the Macbeth thing. And the kid was just chilled to his bone and he grabbed me and he goes, Hey, Spider-Man's dead. He died. Um, there's no more Spider-Man. And I was like, oh, you poor bastard. You poor bastard. You have so much to learn. So as a writer, I mean, you, you, we, we make fun of that kind of convention that everything kind of comes around and everything, you know, is kind of reversible. How do you keep it fresh for yourself as a writer to keep kind of pushing forward, knowing that some of this stuff might have been, you know, might be undone someday. Like, I always wonder that with the Krakoa era of X-Men, because it's so interesting and so fascinating, but part of me wonders, at some point, is it going to get rolled back? Like, is it, you know, at, at what point are we on a bridge too far, that eventually when movies start coming out and X-Men are kind of back to, you know, quote-unquote classic flavoring, will we ever have to go backwards? Like, do you worry about that kind of stuff, or you're just worried about writing your best stories and who cares what happens later? I think you worry about it um, I guess it's like an athlete worries about losing you know it's always a possibility but you just you got to plan to win you know <laughs> so your your goal is always to write something so good that no one that people can't ignore it you know that people will you know would be in the streets if they tried to roll it back now you you maybe write something that good twice in your entire career, but that's when you show up and start writing. That's what you're always trying to do. You just got to try to write something, and you've got to, in your head, think that it's going to hit, people are going to like it, and it's going to last forever. And then if it does, you're happy, and if it doesn't, you just keep moving. So if you were to look at, you know, kind of Zebwell's 1.0, so your first comic, you know, stint what would you say would be those kind of maybe two books that you think that people regard fondly? Um, not necessarily that you think are your best, but the ones that you think that seem to resonate with people the most. Uh, it's curious that it seems like my New Mutants run has stuck around and people still seem to ask me about that or talk about that and... And then my uh, my shed story, mm. and maybe just and maybe my previous story too. The stuff I did with uh, Chris Pacello mm. uh, on Amazing Spider Man seems to have seems to have stuck around. Those are the two that I think did it. And you know, you're talking about twenty issues out of hundred and fifty. You know that people still are, are still part of the consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll take it. You know, that's that's great. I'm super happy and super proud of that. For sure. Um, my uh, one of my my best friends. I was telling him I was going to be talking with you again because he's a huge fan. And he's like, "You're going to ask him about Batman Jack, right?" And I'm like, "Well, we did that in the last episode I did with them." He's like, "Okay, but you're going to ask him about Electra, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah, we we did that on the last one." And I'm like, "Did you not listen to the last one?" He's like, "I think I did. It's been a while." I'm like, "Yeah, it has been five years." But like those were yeah. th- those two books, uh, especially between us, were were such huge ones because your I mean your work on Electra was fantastic. You had a great artistic partner, obviously, and then uh, Batlin Jack sure. is just for me just something else. And I a compliment I gave you last time was that I loved the big turn that you know Jack knew when he died that his son would be okay. 
because he realized that you know he he had, he had capabilities and was able to take care of himself, and that you kind of took him out of being a shitty dad and into being a better dad. Yeah, and that because yeah. it was such yeah. a great concept that we never really you know he does a selfish thing and leaves his son to fend for himself, but. You reframed it in a way that kind of changed that perception, and yet, you know, no one, no one's talked about it. No one's ever written op eds about how it, you know, kind of changed that character. And obviously, Matt can never really know, so it's never really going to go anywhere with him. But I always found that to be so fascinating. And when you talked about that on our last conversation, I was just blown away by how much thought you went, you put into it, and how it informed that character choice. So for me personally, that book is always going to be, you know, one of my tops. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing about comics you know i did put so much thought and interest into that and you know it's been pretty much forgotten and you know no one has really picked up on that and that's that's fine like that's comics you know it's a it's a pit fight out there (laughs) and if if you can you can have a great idea you can have a great story and some of them stick around and some of them are just forgotten it is dog eat dog survival of the fittest out there so before I let you go and get back to your evening, and I, I really appreciate all the time you've already spent with us, um, is there any, any again, I've, I've kind of asked broad strokes what it's been like working on Spider-Man. Is there more specific teases that you are able to kind of give us? Hmm. All I can say is that the artist lineup is incredible. And... Uh, you, I, I just, you, you gotta read it. You gotta read it because we are not making a small swing here. We are going to change things for both of those characters, Spider-Man and Ben Riley. This is not like, this is not like a, a walk down memory lane. This is a, a pretty intense story we're telling. Do you have a sense of, you know, kind of how, how long the, the whole, like, obviously you guys are coming on with a kind of a, a good kind of sense of what the story is going to be. Do you have a sense of the kind of the time frame or the, the length of the run, or is it kind of, you know, open-ended based on where you're going to go from the first kind of plotted out story? I'm asking a lot of vague questions, but I'm just trying to get a sense uh, of, uh, of what you can say. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have mapped out the first story, and we're still kind of just chewing through that. And that takes us um, a good six months into it. Okay. And so we're still, you know, but we're still writing the comics now. So after that, I'm not, none of us are sure what's going to happen. We're just playing it by ear. Um, I'm sure Nick has a plan. But we're, uh, we're just trying to get this baby out the door. When, I mean, because you are, you know, I, I, I like to use the, ro- the word showrunner, obviously, but did you get any tips from Jonathan about how to, how to do it? Uh, for for comics specifically, because obviously you've you've worked in TV, you have a sense of of the room, but obviously comics are a different beast. Yeah, I I didn't get any tips verbally, but I was able to watch him do his thing for about a year, mm-hmm. and so that absolutely a hundred percent informed me on this. Um, was so helpful to watch how he did things, how he navigated um, having his voice while letting other, you know, making sure everyone kept their voice. That was really, really valuable for me to watch. He's a very, very smart man. And it was a, 
it was really educational to watch him do his thing. Is it? And my last question, I guess, is now you're working with you know with Nick again, who obviously you guys are, are friends with. He's part of what kind of brought you back into the fold, so to speak. Um, is it, not, it? What's it like working with him directly as an editor again on a high profile book like Spider Man? Um, you know, you've obviously you've you've been back for a little while. You've been working on Hellions, etc., with Jordan, but now you're back with Nick working on Amazing Spider Man. Is it feel like old home week because you guys do have you know have worked together in the past, or does it feel like something new? Or what does that that collaboration bring that's both new and old to you? Yeah, it's really really nice to step into a job that, that's this big and have that feeling of home because we just have that relationship. We worked really well together on New Mutants, and so to step back into it, it allows us to just focus on the fun parts of the job, which is to get this story done. You know, we don't have to feel each other out. Uh, we work really well together, so that was a big uh, selling point for me to come on and do this, for sure. Did, uh, when he first kind of approached you about working on it and, again, being part of a team like this, did you have to think about it, or was it like kind of an immediate Yes. Well, it was going to be a lot of work, and that's the only the only reason I had had to think about it is, you know, I'm also, you know, I, I worked on She Hulk for Disney Plus. There's also things that I want to do in the the television world that I or that I'd like to get a chance to do. So the only question was, do I want to take take um, this amount of my time but at the end of the day it was like oh it's freaking amazing spider-man what am i gonna say i got i got to do this it's it's saladin it's kelly it's pat it's zig i i gotta uh, i i i'm never going to regret doing this no matter what happens so that was the only hesitation okay well, again, Zeb, it's great to have you back in comics, first of all, because uh, I've always been a fan of your work, so it's nice to actually have you back, and Hellions has been fantastic, and I'm really excited to see what you do with Ben Riley because apparently I'm a Benhead now. Um, yeah, so, Benhead. <laughs> so I'm very excited to see what you do there, but again, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Uh, it's been uh, great having you back, and uh, who knows, we could have you back on uh, you know, in a year or so to see check in on Spider-Man and see where you're at. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Adam.